Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Brand Your Practice podcast, where you get to learn about branding, marketing, and scaling your private practice. I'm Brent Stutzman, your host, and today we're going to be talking about the five mistakes to avoid when building your private practice team. And to help me to do that is Rory Tyre. Rory is the executive coach and the chief business development officer at Go Innovation. Welcome to the show, Rory. Hey, Brent. It's so good to be here. Well, we're going to be talking about the five mistakes to avoid when building your private practice team. But first, uh, like myself, being a digital marketer wasn't my first career. And I know coaching was not your first career either. So share us a little bit how you became an executive coach. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I almost fell into it by accident um, through the affirmation of some people I was working with who said, you know, it seems like you have got a natural knack for this. Maybe you should consider actually getting certified. Um, so I, uh, in a former life, worked actually in nonprofit marketing uh, at a small a private university system. Ended up meeting one of my business co-founders through my wife. She uh, had been close with his family for years. They're all from North Carolina. And um, started working with him in uh, in executive leadership at a nonprofit uh, here in Mississippi, which is where I live now in Tupelo. And uh, over the course of that time, I learned a lot about him. He had worked for this global organization called the Center for Creative Leadership that does coaching, uh, leadership development, has all these executive programs. And he had innovated a lot in that space, opened an office for them in Ethiopia, and was looking for ways to continue the work that he had been doing. And so I just apprenticed myself to him, uh, quickly began facilitating on my own, and then started having coaching-like relationships with some people and eventually got certified uh, with the International Coaching Federation. And uh, since then, have been working pretty consistently with uh, a lot of one-on-one -on -one clients and then also doing some group and team coaching. Got it. Wow. Okay. So yeah, that is a nice little... Uh kind of roundabout way to make it happen as in yeah. as with most second careers uh, yeah usually starts with your wife so uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah her support has been really critical i think you know the transition the clarity for me was i was working in nonprofit marketing and i enjoyed it and the joke i like to tell people is i triple the size of the marketing department at the nonprofit that i was working at and and what that means is when i started i was the marketing department and i hired two people and so by the by the time we had worked a lot together i realized that my passion for coaching and for leader development was a lot bigger than my role in the nonprofit and i wasn't as effectively leading that team uh, and i got to the point where i recognized they're going to be able to carry a bunch of stuff forward i'm becoming a bottleneck let me step out and allow someone else to come in who really wants to focus on that particular thing. And since then, uh, that was uh, Labor Day 2019 when I stepped in to do this work with Go Innovation full time. And it was just such a liberating decision. Uh, there was a lot of fear that went into that transition, a lot of uncertainty and unknown. And it's very gratifying having experienced a lot of that myself. Then as a coach, I, like, I know how that feels for somebody being in that zone. And I can help others walk through that with clarity, uh, with just a greater sense of sureness about who they are and what they want. And uh, that's just the most gratifying thing for me is helping people walk through those kinds of times. Yeah, well, um, you know, for our listeners, I, I hired Rory uh, not too long ago to help me walk through a big transition from into my yep. second career. Yep. And so that was a fantastic experience. And so, um, so thank you for that. That was a gift. That was a oh, gift. Man. It was a you were you were a good client, which is not <laughs> cannot be said about every single coaching client. I got to say. <laughs> so. What, like I listened? Uh, is that what it, I listened to what you, your advice? I'm kidding. That's, not... That's right. Listen, you know, a desire to be self-aware, these kinds of just foundations. <laughs> well, you know, if um, 
a lot of people get into private, a lot of mental health professionals, they get into private practice because they want to help more people. They want to make more money. And one of the ways that, uh, that you can do that, you can make more money and help more people is by scaling. And in order to scale, you need to grow a team. So Mm -hmm. I'd love for us to jump in and, and talk about those five mistakes to avoid when building your private practice team. So I'll hand it over to you and you can take it away. Absolutely. Yeah. And I should say at the outset as a caveat that I, I tend to be personally wary of anybody that says this, what I'm about to say is the end all be all on a particular subject. So these are five things that are related to mistakes that I've made or that I've seen others make challenges that I've walked others through. It's by no means an exhaustive list. There's a lot of people who have written a lot of good things on how to build and lead a really effective team. And, um, I, I tried to think about this through the lens of, you know, someone who is a therapist, I imagine really helping and serving people is like at the core of your identity in some capacity. My wife is a physician assistant. She's in healthcare. And for a lot of healthcare pe- people, it's just a similar driver. Um, but that doesn't bring with it. Um, and sometimes makes it even harder to develop some of the skills that are required when you're actually having to oversee a business uh, mm. and can actually drain some of the joy that you had uh, in starting the business to begin with. And so I thought about these five things in the context of helping people reclaim some of that joy uh, and just avoid some of the pitfalls. So the first thing that I think is just foundational is uh, a mistake to avoid is having fuzzy vision for your company, for your team. Um, and in my experience, sometimes this results from having fuzzy vision for yourself personally. Uh, and, and so when I say vision at the, at the most basic level, it's just, what do I want? <laughs> like, right. what do I actually want and or need, um, for me personally? And so this thing, you know, this goes into what are the reasons why I started this business? What are the outcomes I hope for, for myself and or for my family? Um, but then, and so that's the place to begin is with yourself. Do you really know what you want? Um, and, and where you want to be? And then clarify uh, for your business, what's the big thing? You know, what's the mission? What are the key strategies that describe how you go about using time and resources? And then what are the key uh, metrics, the, the, the key practices and how often you do these things that help you to know you're on the right track. And you bring a team member in, um, clarity on that vision, it's very motivating. Uh, it can help you know, or another person know whether they're actually a good fit. Uh, and then in my experience, clarity on vision and repeating that clarity tend to trickle down into clarity on other really important things like role clarity, um, holding people accountable, being able to celebrate wins and developing a culture of celebrating the successes and being honest about things that fall short. I think it all starts with having that clear um, vision for yourself personally as the business owner and then also for the organization. Got it. Yeah, that's a big one. Um, you know, cause people want to know where they're headed. Right. So, yep. you know, especially as I'm kind of on the outside of the millennial, I was born in 1982. So uh-huh. like, I don't know where I am anymore in that spectrum, <laughs> but as I, as I'm hiring people and young millennials, it's helpful for them to kind of know what is this actually contributing to? Like, mm-hmm. what is my work actually, what, where's the, what is the vision of this work? What am I, and, and where are we going? But actually, mm-hmm. you know what? It's not just for millennials. I think it's just for anybody, actually. Just yeah. like, where where is this headed? Yeah. Um, and so getting really clear on that. And I know we've talked about the difference between mission and vision. And I'm, I'm curious if you could That's just right. break that down just briefly for our listeners so they can kind of have a mindset, like they, under, they understand a little bit better. Yeah, super helpful distinction. Again, I'm, this is not the end all be all. What, what people have found helpful as I've worked with them on this is that mission is sort of like a, um, a big picture headline of what exactly you do. 
And uh, from a marketing standpoint, this is a kind of thing that ideally helps orient people to why you exist or to what distinguishes your practice from other practices or something like that. But um, potentially, if it's this internal kind of thing, it's it's the why, you know, why do we exist? And then that's mission. Vision is, in in my opinion, one way to think about it is this is what you'd like the world to look like as a result of the success of your mission. So assuming what you, that what you say you want to do and why you want to do it, assuming that works, what kind of world is going to result? And that gives people something to really sink their teeth into when they're thinking about, what do I, do I want to be involved in that? Is that the kind of world I want to help bring about? And then ideally that becomes very motivating for the time when you know, when you're in the weeds or when you have had some losses in some way, that that picture of, well, this is the world we're fighting to bring about, it motivates you. And then ideally, it helps um, you develop this really committed client base who um, feel motivated, like their part in bringing about that world too. Yeah. Know that thinking back on when we were working together, when you're helping me coach me, we talked mm-hmm. about the, what is the vision? What is the world that I want? And, and it involved a lot of things, uh, particularly with family. Mm-hmm. And and our neighbors and kind of our mission as a family and realizing that my yeah. current vocation it was actually going to be quite hard to accomplish that. That's right. And so, um, and and why that was so important is that uh, what I was doing because <laughs> I like to build systems of safety around me, <laughs> financial mm. and all these other things, right? Yeah. And basically, that transition was b- breaking down those systems. Was basically mm. saying we're gonna we're gonna need to like burn it to the ground a little bit, burn the boats. Like, <laughs> yeah, and right. so in order for me to do that, something uh, that I've been working hard for years on to create, I needed that vision for me in order to burn those boats, in order mm, to take down those fences, those, that's those right. things of security, so that I can move into something completely new and build something new that would be better and actually help me accomplish that vision. Yeah. So um, that's absolutely, yeah. So that's really so, important to have. <laughs> And the shortest way I could probably put it is um, leaders who know where they're going and know why mm-hmm. that matters are more likely to create an organization and a motivated team that also knows where they're going and why that matters. And those things all work symbiotically together. Yeah, man, I got to get back to my own Branger practice mission again, thinking about <laughs> <That's> that. <right. laughs> um, all right. Thank you for that. So yeah, yeah, fuzzy vision for the company. Avoid that mistake. Yep. Um, all right. Jump into the next one. So the next one can often is often a corollary of this first one, and that would be unclear or overly loose expectations. Um, so as a coach, I, I work with people on boundaries a lot. At the, at the core, a boundary is just what will I say yes to or and no to, uh, mm. and then following through on that in inappropriate ways. And um, sometimes, for one reason or another, leaders just don't set good boundaries, uh, good expectations whether it's role clarity, uh, whether it's nailing down that system or that process, uh, whether it's even small things like what, what is the culture around when people show up where they're supposed to be? You know, how acceptable is it for someone to consistently show up five to 10 minutes late? Um, a, a good friend and mentor of mine used to always say it's easier to loosen up than tighten up. And so if you create a culture where if you're walking in right at eight and your shift starts at eight, you're actually late. You should have been there five minutes early. It's easy to give grace later on. Um, it, it's not easy to get people to raise the bar, right, of their productivity. Mm, right. or the, it, That's really hard because culture is sort of the sum output of what actually takes place in a system. And so you can say on paper that we value X, Y, and Z and all this stuff. But if in practice there's stuff that really should have been tightened up to start with, it's just going to be hard to do that. So unclear, overly loose expectations. Make sure people understand exactly how you go about 
doing things? How do you, and I know with, with um, therapists, there's all kinds of minutia around billing and submitting claims to insurance and mm -hmm. um, scheduling and, and policies, getting clear and specific in the front end, as much as your brain may hate some of this stuff and some of the admin stuff, the clarity is just a gift to people. If they know what they expect, that allows you to hire more effectively because you're not dropping a surprise on somebody that you're holding them accountable to something that they weren't informed of. Uh, and it just, and it makes it more likely that your business can grow. If you can answer some of these foundational questions, that frees up your admin people to focus on the stuff that drives profitability and not having to constantly put out uh, little frustrating fires. And so, yeah, avoid the mistake of unclear or overly loose expectations. Instead, be clear uh, and remember that it's easier to loosen up than it is to tighten up. Yeah. There is nothing more exhausting for a business owner and a private practice owner to have these little tiny it feels like nitpicky conversations. Uh-huh. And so I think that's absolutely right. Uh, over and over. Be very specific. <laughs> over and over and over again, right? Yep. It's uh, be very specific on what the tasks are. What are the critical mm -hmm. actions? What are these three things that uh, I get this from uh, StoryBrand, their um, mm. um, mission, mission statement made simple, right? So there's these critical actions that you need to do every day, every week in order to accomplish the mission. What That's are right. those three things? And I would encourage our listeners, write down the three things you need your clinicians to do in order to uh, accomplish the mission. I guarantee you it's going to be charge your clients. <laughs> That's one. And it sounds uh -huh. so basic, but believe me, actually be more specific. Charge your clients after the, after their, after, either after each session or at the end of the day or within 24 hours. Because I tell you, I, I, I see it all the time. They'll yeah. wait till the end of the month to, to charge clients or whatever. So daily charge clients and maybe it's um, fill out case notes within 48 hours because you're going to have to manage case notes and a lot of times therapists will not write. Now, it sounds like, Brent, this sounds so nitpicky. I promise you, you don't want to be having those conversations no. every day of the week every week, yeah. every month with those clinicians say, this is what's expected of you. This is how you'll be judged. <laughs> Your work yeah. will be judged based on this. And you, as you said, clarity is kindness. Yep. Clear is kind. That's from Brene Brown. Um, can't think of the book right now, but she says clear is kind. And so, and that's like an, I take an expansive view of kind. It's kind to individuals and it's also kind to your business goals, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, again, it, you, you may be passionate about serving people and about doing the work of therapy, but those that passion alone will not um, drive profitability and, and a successful business. And you may end up not liking the thing that formerly you love to do. And so, yeah, unclear overly these expectations, just nip it in the bud, get everything out, written out so that people, you can reference a piece of paper that says, this is how we yes. do what we do, you know, any questions and move on from there. Awesome. Yeah. Well, let's go into the next one. This is great. Mm. Yeah. So um, another mistake I urge people to avoid in building your team would be not having an onboarding process or a trial period for new hires. Um, mm. These are related and we'll take them in turn. So the onboarding process is essentially making it so clear to someone that an exciting new chapter has opened up in their professional life by joining your team. Um, it You don't want somebody to assume or to have to assume that you are excited that they're here. Uh, you don't want somebody to come in and immediately be hit with a bunch of low clarity, uh, a bunch of frustration, 
a bunch of, uh, I don't know where to put this thing. I don't know how to access this stuff that I need. The onboarding process should orient people to everything about the business so that after this process, you could trust this person to go out and explain your business in a very compelling way to someone else. Um, at least as much of it as they need to know appropriate to their role. Um, so you want everyone in the organization to be aligned on that. And the way that you fix that over time is you make sure that everyone goes through the same standardized, exciting onboarding process, you know, have some swag that at, at people's desks, so to speak, or, you know, make <laughs> like, make it a celebration that you should, um, cause that first impression is so critical. And then the trial period, once the onboarding process is completed, you know, and again, be clear, have a length of time, have a, a checklist that's clear about here's all, once you've gone through this checklist, you can feel confident that there's no, uh, you know, big, hairy, unanswered questions somewhere that's, that you're going to get hit with as you're trying to schedule your first clients. You've seen it all. Now, the trial period is a very clear period of time. And again, I have to caveat this with, I am not an HR expert. I'm not, uh, you know, an employment lawyer. So um, right. you, you start running into, you know, maybe differences state by state in terms of how employment contracts are handled and things. But in my experience, some kind of a trial period where somebody recognizes, you know what, this is the big, this is your on-ramp. You're not being oriented anymore because those basic questions are answered and you should know exactly where to go for all that stuff now. But you're now being on-ramped into our organization and culture, and we're not going to evaluate you during this time the same way I would evaluate someone that's been here for a year or five years or 10 years. Mm. So it's, it's, it's not necessarily a curve, like you're not covering over stuff that needs to be addressed, but it's a safety net where you're letting people rec know, hey... When I give you feedback on this and, and there's this learning curve, it's to be expected. You're not going to do everything right all the time. And we're giving ourselves the grace to have a period where we figure that out. After this period ends, mistakes are going to be handled uh, in a different way. And again, ideally, you have some kind of a clear system for addressing um, behaviors that don't align with the best version of the company. Uh, and, and so in some cases, maybe you have an, in, uh, an employee and you're able to say there's actually a 60-day trial period and at the end and, and your contract is actually only for 60 days after that we're going to turn it into a different kind of contract or or maybe it's just you're going to get a bonus if if you come out of that and these are the three things that bonus is going to be evaluated on however you put it again you you don't want to make somebody feel unsafe like they're they're just walking on eggshells and being judged um, but paradoxically, you do want to give both of you some kind of an easier out if you discover that you made a poor hiring choice or if they discovered that they made a poor employment choice, which happens for a lot of reasons. It's hard sometimes for people to know what they want. And so hmm. some kind of a trial period where it's clear that we are expecting you to um, to need to be on-ramped in a way that ideally a year from now you shouldn't still be needing to be, or even three months from now or, or six months from now. Um, and so those two things work in tandem. If they're on, onboarded through an orientation process that's very clear and compelling, they're going to be excited and all their questions should be answered to get the barriers out of the way for them just to start doing profitable work for your business. And then the trial period allows for a time of just a soft landing uh, in the team. So I, I highly commend those two things. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I remember we talked about this and, and my wheels returning, like, how do you do that mm -hmm. with therapists? And I wonder if there's, well, the trial period in some ways you were saying is to help create a, like an escape hatch in case, in case it's not a good fit. Sure. Um, and, but you also said the trial period is sort of like a way to kind of close like, okay, this season of onboarding is over and now we're moving into kind of the next stage of what you're doing. Um, so I see that. And, you know, 
a lot of a lot of private practice owners are scared. Like they, they don't know if it's a good fit. And mm-hmm. one thing that I typically do, and this was even more true before COVID was everywhere, was um, we take people out to eat. So in fact, we they would bring their partner with them, and we would just see how they how how we have a conversation over food because it's mm-hmm. in my belief this is a form of hospitality, but it's also like it's hard to hide. <laughs> it's hard to hide sure. anything when sharing a meal. You can pick yeah. up on all the awkwardness and and you just want to see how they work in kind of this in that environment. The other kind of mean thing that we do, uh, when I say we, it's Susan and I, um, <laughs> is we have them over for dinner and we have them, you know, we have dinner with our kids. And if they can handle the amount of the insanity uh-huh. that is um, and just unpredictability, <laughs> Are they kind to children? You know, it's like yeah. those actually make a big difference. And as you hire, as you, you know, I, I think about the, the thing that you hire primarily yeah. is uh, culture, mm-hmm. right? You're hiring. Are they good? Uh, can you go on a road trip with them? Can you share a meal with them? That's going to tell you sure. right off the bat. So before we get too far down the line and, and have them sign on the dotted line as an employee or contractor, we try to run them through. We just try to share a meal with them and just see how sure. that goes see how that feels. Well, and you just mentioned the distinction between employee and contractor. In some industries, I don't know how applicable it is here, but in some industries, that's the way to do it, is you have an agreement where, hey, we're going to contract and and there's going to be an evaluation. So, I, you know, I don't know, do client evaluations play a role in how, in how business owners figure out whether a therapist is being successful? What kind of data? That's really the key is, are you both on the mm. same page about what success looks like and how you're going to be evaluated. Because if you're on the same page about that, if you've already demonstrated through like an intelligent hiring process and, and, and some out of the box stuff that you're mentioning, if you've already demonstrated, look, it seems like there's pretty good fit here. Then, then ideally there's, there's a lot of feedback, a lot of safety. Again, it's not, Hey, 60 days from now, I'm going to tell you how you did. You know, ideally this, this part of this trial period comes with a lot more one-on-one check-ins as an example, than you would expect to have to have um, over oh, in a normal, you know, month or something like that. So that the person is pretty clear, you know, by the end of weeks two, three, and four, it, at that point, the outcome probably shouldn't be surprising barring the revealing of some crazy new information or something mm-hmm. catastrophic happening. Right. right? Um, but yeah, that, you know, again, again, all the caveats, I am not a source of official legal or employment advice. <laughs> However, I think the, you know, having some distinction between you're, you're an orientee, you are a new member of the community and now you are a full-fledged member of the community with ideally as much say just as someone who's been around a lot longer because we're all shoulder to shoulder in this, right? Um, we're not going to play the game of who's been here longest and automatically thinking their opinion is, is worth the most, those kinds of things. Yeah. Oh, so helpful. Let's jump, let's jump to the next one. Yeah. So the other thing, um, I call this failing to cultivate a culture of candid feedback loops. This is kind of a tongue twister, so I'm going to say it again. One mistake I recommend you avoid is if you fail to cultivate a culture of candid feedback loops. So um, let's start with the word culture. So culture is like, it's this, the sum total of what's actually said and done, right? So if you have got values and a values poster, those are meaningless unless they show up in the decisions that are made and in the words that are spoken and in the, the feelings people feel in your organization. Uh, a candid feedback loop is the expectation that we're going to have um, honest conversations about our impact on a given situation, whether that impact is positive or negative. Um, and the way that you cultivate a culture of that is as the leader, first, um, I'm explicit about using the language of feedback and I have some kind of a common framework so that people know what I mean. 
because lots of people have different ideas about what it means to get feedback. And so Mm. I've got frameworks I train people in on this, but the basic idea is make sure people know that when you say that word, here is what I mean by that word. And then as the positional leader, you demonstrate a commitment to feedback by asking people for critical feedback. Like, Hey, have I done or said anything that's impacted you or anyone else negatively? And then when people are candid with you, demonstrate that you can be trusted with that information, that you don't retaliate, you don't ignore it, you don't automatically play defense and minimize it, those kinds of things. That shows people that you have integrity uh, and that you Mm. mean what you say. And then then as you're doing that, create this practice of constantly catching people doing things right. So (laughs) as you hear things from people, as you catch them doing things, spend 80% of your time calling out the things that are going well. It will make you feel better as a leader, like it will energize you. And, yeah. it, and if you're giving real feedback, that's not just fluff, like, hey, you're great. You know, like that, that's encouragement. And encouragement is also nice, but encouragement is not feedback. Feedback is you did or said this thing and it had this positive impact in this specific situation. Um, and gradually that shows people that you're paying attention. Uh, that you're that you're putting your money where your mouth is, so to speak, and eventually it cultivates the kind of trust that allows people to hear a hard conversation from you because they know that you are have their good at the heart of your motivation. They know that you're paying attention, and so you're not lying or twisting or judging. You're just very straightforward, like, "Hey, here's this thing you said or did this," and 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 it's it's a conversation, right? You know, "Hey, here's the right. narrative in my head about what I saw or what I heard." Uh, clarify that for me. Like, what's your narrative? What was going on there? Mm. Um, and, and, and again, the point is not to judge intent or motive because no one can know those things. The point is to look at impact. And ultimately the impact is what kind of a team, what kind of a business are we, are we building? Is it the best version that it could be? And we want our words and actions to be moving in that direction. And so when they don't, we need to have a culture where we expect already that we're all paying attention to impact. We're building each other up when it's good and we're calling it out when it's not because we don't want any barriers to being the absolute best place to work that we could have. Um, so again, for a lot of people, feedback, it sounds trite. Uh, it brings up images of super irrelevant annual performance reviews with somebody that maybe you don't even trust has your best interest in mind. Um, I'm thinking of feedback as we mm. expect that we're specific about what we're doing well, and we're going to call it out. And and, and it's, it's not as a leader, just because I give you a paycheck and continue giving you a paycheck doesn't mean that I've affirmed you as much as I need to affirm you. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I had someone tell me that was like, well, I, I give them a paycheck, right? You know, they're, they're still working here. And I'm like, okay, yes, that is the absolute baseline of approval you could give to someone is to continue right. giving them a paycheck. But human <laughs> beings need more. We want to live up to something that's bigger than ourselves. Hmm. Um, so cultivate those feedback loops where people anticipate that this is a place where something done well gets called out and applauded specifically and something done not well, others will help me notice it if I didn't so that we're all pointing in the same positive direction together. That, that, those things are just game changers. And again, positional leaders, you have the power. You can be calling out the good and others way more often than you call out the negative. And you can be asking for and constantly, hey, let me know. Like, and, you, and, and, and you can be candid. Hey, let me know if I do something well because I need that affirmation. It helps me. You know, just, mm-hmm. just let me know. Cause that will help me know what to repeat. Uh, yeah. and then the other stuff helps me know what to avoid. So cultivate those candid feedback loops, make sure that as people come in, they expect this is a place where we have those conversations. We don't avoid them. Yeah. You know, I imagine this is probably the biggest area for any leader to grow in. I just can only imagine that because it's rarely modeled to us, right? It's yeah. rarely modeled, um, 
candid feedback loop. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. usually only spoken to if you do something wrong. So yeah, yep. I, this is, you know, this is something I'm trying to catch my team on just always trying to show gratitude for the work, but mm. also trying to not just show gratitude, but like, this is what I liked about your work or this yep. one particular thing. So keep that up. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But that, I, I just imagine that is, that is going to be a struggle for most people, but it's a needed, you know, if, if you're going to grow a business, if you're going to grow a private practice, if you want to retain people on your team, this is probably mm -hmm. one of the biggest ways you can do it. So the, the place to begin is to stop and consider when I think of the word feedback, what mental models come to mind? You know, what experiences do I have? Um, do I know what it's like to have a mentor give me hard feedback and then grow from it? Uh, mm. Do I know what it's like to be on the receiving end of really crappy feedback that mm. just was like a judgment? You know, it was a judgment to me or it was in specific or it, it was somebody thought they were being helpful, but actually they were totally misinterpreting something. Uh, what feelings arise in my body as I consider, right? And then, and then your overall emotional intelligence. Do I, you know, uh, am I socially aware? Do I pick up on stuff? And, and then, you know, getting some frameworks to help you so that you, you know how to have the conversation. There's books, Crucial Conversations. It's a classic book on this stuff. Um, mm -hmm. uh, there's another book. I'm, there's, there's a bunch of good books on the subject. But that main thing is that self-awareness around what's my attitude to and experiences towards feedback? Because you are going to regurgitate to those around you whatever you're already familiar with and have experienced. Uh, and so if it's not great, yeah. um, you're going to end up creating that environment for someone else. <laughs> so now is the time to pause and think about what environment would I have wanted to work in? What kind of a leader would I have wanted to work for in this area? What would have really been helpful to me? And you get to be that for other people, which is awesome. Nice. Yeah, absolutely. Well, before we go on, I want to remind the listener about a free resource you can take advantage of today. Look, most mental health professionals open a private practice to help more people and to make more money. The problem is they lack a clear marketing strategy. Well, that's why I created the Private Practice Marketing Roadmap. It's a free video training series that will walk you through my three pillars of private practice marketing. If you need fresh ideas about marketing yourself as a clinician or your private practice, or you just need a marketing strategy, go to brandyourpractice.com slash roadmap. It's completely free and it'll help you generate a pipeline of new clients. You won't grow unless you have a plan. So go to brandyourpractice.com slash roadmap and sign up for the free course and get started today. All right. So take us to mistake to avoid number five. Sure. Before I do that, I just want to add a plug. If you're listening to this and you're considering working with Brent, you should do it because he knows what he's doing. He's incredibly talented. He is an easy person to work with and he will, he will positively impact your business's bottom line. So that's all I'll say oh. about that. You should, you should definitely work with him. Well, um, thank you. <laughs> hey, and I mean it. So, and you did, you didn't pay me yeah, yet. Yeah, so, <laughs> okay. So final, final principle. Um, and this is, this is less a mistake to avoid and more of here's just what I think you should do. The principle is hire slow, fire fast, mm -hmm. hire slow, fire fast. If this, this little maxim has come up in so many different conversations for me and in so many different contexts, and usually it's in a space of regret that I mm. wish I had slowed down the hiring process and I wish, and or, I wish I had let go of that person sooner. Um, 
maybe a softened version of that is I wish I had taken this person's behavior or taken this warning sign seriously sooner, right? Maybe it's not an immediate firing, but it's like, a, oh, right. we need to slow down and have a candid feedback conversation about this. Um, because humans are, are we're, we build patterns, we build stories in our head and we act out those stories often subconsciously. And the culture of your practice will be whatever you allow. Hmm. And, and so when hiring slow means... Again, don't think of it so much in terms of time, but maybe intentionality, purpose. Um, how can you create hiring processes and systems that move beyond the simple resume, move beyond keywords, move beyond people you may already know or people that are just like you, and move toward um, just a thicker way to get to know somebody and evaluate their yeah. readiness, which, which again starts with you being super clear on who you are and what you want and who your organization, who your business is and what it wants. <laughs> and then that helps you to figure out whether people can align to that. Um, and then the fire fast thing is just, you know what it, um, it, I've just had more people reflect to me that they regret not taking something seriously sooner. Uh, maybe it's just, they didn't trust their gut or they didn't pay attention to an, to, in, you know, to an intuition that they had about a situation. Uh, but often it feels more comfortable to just avoid something. It feels more comfortable to not upset the status quo. And just in my experience, people invariably come to regret that they wish they had taken it more seriously. They wish they hadn't ended up wasting more time. So higher slow, mm. which can really be higher intelligently fire fast, meaning vigorously protect the things that make your business a special place to work. Uh, because again, the culture of your business will be whatever you allow to take place there. So hire slow, fire fast. I got a story about that. So one of the, um, mm. so as I, as I was growing my own business, I talked to my dad about it because, so my dad um, was like a company man, like okay. just worked for the same company forever yeah. like, until he retired. He was one of mm. the last few. He even had a pension. One of the last few people like even have a pension. Yeah. He's in there that long. And um and you know, he became a manager as I was asking him just about his career because I was actually fascinated because you know, as a dad, like you don't usually ask about his work. He come from yeah. growing up, you know, like, hey daddy, just play with me, not so much. Yeah. You know, so uh, do you have to fire anyone today? You know, you just never have those conversations. And I was asking him just just uh um, what was it like to be a manager? But I also asked him like what his regret, like biggest mistake was. Mm. And it was on not firing this one guy. He held on to him for too long and it was mm. so toxic to his department. Mm. And he, and it, so as you were telling us, I was like, yeah, that, <laughs> as my dad's managerial career for like 35 years, his one oh, kind wow. of big regret mistake was not firing this one guy who yep. was just terrible for everybody on the team. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, again, <laughs> if, if you've got that culture of candid feedback loops, people will realize pretty, like in my mind, in an ideal world, people end up self-selecting out, you know, they realize, mm. wow, this, like my behavior here will be noticed and it's either going to be celebrated or not tolerated. <laughs> mm -hmm, like that's mm -hmm. kind of the extreme. Like my behavior is going to be noticed and it's going to be either celebrated or it won't be tolerated. And so the people that do the stuff that's going to be celebrated, they will, they will become so loyal and the people whose behavior won't be tolerated, they'll figure it out, uh, because they'll see it happen. And again, ideally it's very clear. You've got a clear three strike system, whatever the disciplinary system is. Again, it is easier to loosen up than to tighten up later. So, um, you know, even little things. And again, this is where working with an HR consultant is very helpful because things like how to document and how to, how to make sure that you're, um, 
covering your bases in terms of uh, mm-hmm. law and all the kinds of things like super, super important. So again, for like the 50th time, I'm not an HR person, not a legal expert, but like what you, the story you just told me about your dad, I have heard some iteration of that from so many people in so many different career fields that they just wish they'd taken some action sooner. And it is because someone left unchecked can do damage to your culture that you may not even find out about until long after they're gone. And so just don't let that happen. You know, don't just take, create a culture where behavior is either going to be celebrated or not tolerated. Uh, And then have a very clear process that's above board for what it means to not tolerate that. That does give grace. That does give people chances. It's very clear on how to, how to fix things. um, But is, but there's boundaries and you're going to enforce Mm -hmm. those boundaries because that's healthy for you. It's healthy for your clients. It's healthy for your business. Wow. So helpful. Thank you, Rory. And, uh, How can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more about your coaching services? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So my website is rorytyer.com, R-O-R-Y-T-Y-E-R.com. And one of my favorite things to do is just have a 30-minute free conversation with somebody. Um, You know, it often people are in situations where there's some kind of a transition coming up. And as they enter it, there's a lot of fear because they realize they may not be sure of what they actually want or need. Mm. And um, that's one of the reasons I coach people is because I can help them become clear on what they want or need and then clear on what they need to do to make progress toward it. And so usually in a free 30-minute conversation, I can figure out whether someone's problem is coachable uh, and whether they would really benefit from working with me. Uh, And then I usually have a series of conversations that I'll work with somebody. Um, I'll also say I'm getting ready to launch a full course and how to use Zoom effectively, uh, called using Zoom effectively because so many of us are doing so many things on Zoom. And if you're like me, you're in the driver's seat and you sometimes feel like you have a less than stellar set of tools to help other people have a good experience on Zoom. Uh, And so this course is top to bottom, everything you could possibly need to know, both about the platform, technical orientation, and then also some tips and tricks for just more effective sessions working with people. That will launch uh, near the beginning of March. And so if you go to my website there, there'll be some information about how to become aware of that when it happens. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah. And I'll have some links in the shore notes below so you can get in touch with Rory. And also, um, you know, I did that free 30 minute conversation with you and you mentioned that a lot of people don't don't even know what coaching kind of feels like or looks like. That's right. And that's like a, it's a really good kind of short example of, of what it looks like to be good. Cause you were like kind of coaching me in that. And so, that's um, right. So at the end, I was like, yeah, I'm hooked. I need this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point, man. Like I, when I say a 30 minute conversation, it's really like, I'd like, I'll just coach you. And I promise you'll walk away from the conversation, most likely having been helped in some capacity, you'll be a little bit clearer, even if the Mm -hmm. clarity is, you know, coaching's not what I need. And sometimes that's the best thing I can do to people is maybe, maybe you need therapy uh, or maybe Mm -hmm. you need the services of a business consultant or something like that, you know, and, and I'm not those things. Um, but in either case, you'll have learned something and I think it will be valuable to you. Ah, that's right. Well, all right, folks, thanks for listening. If you found the conversation useful, subscribe to the podcast and please join me again next time for the Brand Your Practice podcast.